This is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Monday, December the 19th, 2022. We are getting towards the end of the year, getting towards what some people might think of as the meaningful season, the season of Christmas and of the new year, which supposedly carries much meaning. Um, although for some people, there is no meaning in the world. That is what the meaning is. Um, we did a show uh, at the beginning of uh, the year with an Australian writer, Wendy Seifert. Um, She's a self-proclaimed nihilist. I thought a rather entertaining and amusing interview. She has a new book out, The Sunny Nihilist, a declaration of the pleasure of pointlessness. It was a kind of manifesto of nihilism. Not everyone, though, I think, agrees that nihilism is something to be proud of, something to be eulogized, something to celebrate. My guest today, an old friend, Ewan Morrison, uh, had an interesting piece out recently uh, the optimistic nihilists, in which he's somewhat critical of nihilism. He's also the author of a number of very successful novels, including his latest, How to Survive Everything. Ewan is uh, joining us from Glasgow in Scotland. Hi, Andrew. Thanks, thanks for having us. Or so uh, are you going to celebrate Christmas, Ewan? Does this period, the next couple of weeks, does it have meaning for you? I know the Scots love new year i don't know why they like the new year more than other people well the scots actually the scots you have to remember were very um very calvinist very protestant and actually banned christmas for 200 years so we've just got back into christmas since the 1950s people don't really realize that about the scots we're so we're so we're dour and we're we're miserable but we're also have been very anti-christmas as well so um when we get into Christmas, it's a bit like a sort of Americanization of Christmas or an Anglicized Christmas. And we allow ourselves the dubious pleasure of consumerism because the Scots as well are very, are very socialist people too. And when it comes to the new year, the Scots celebrating always the end of the year or the beginning of a new year in terms of misery, perhaps there's always this celebration of, of turning your back on something as opposed to celebrating the beginning of something. I think Americans... Yeah. who are eternally optimistic, annoyingly optimistic, tend to celebrate the beginning of something. I'm guessing the Scots celebrate the end of something. I think the Scots are actually celebrating their status as the sick man of Europe and are just celebrating the joy of uh, free alcohol everywhere. Um, you know, we have huge, huge problems with alcoholism and, uh, and sort of negative hedonism, like, you know, getting out of it, we would call it. So um, there's a lot of despair that gets soaked up from the year and gets sort of expelled in a festival status um, at New Year. I kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's also the time of the greatest number of hospitalizations in Scotland as well. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of alcohol-fueled frenzy of transgression that a very restrained people um, have to have once a year. So it, it's not really to do with with the optimism or or looking back on the year before i don't think it's surprising there are so many successful um scottish novelists there's so much to write about in glasgow <laughs> as you're suggesting you and 
Um, your piece, The Optimistic Nihilists, I don't think you're a great friend of nihilism. Where do you get your material? doesn't sound as if there are any optimistic nihilists in Scotland, are there? Well, it's well. I think we all live on the internet these days, or at least we have done since the lockdown. And I've certainly come across hundreds of thousands of optimistic nihilists. Um, there was a piece in the Guardian which was extolling optimistic nihilism. Um, just yeah, did you weeks. have you read the Seifert book? No, I haven't read it, but I've I think seen. You actually, found it. I thought she was very entertaining and interesting. Of course. You've spent a lot of time, like the rest of us, on YouTube. There's a guide yeah. to nihilism on YouTube that has several million views. Another one about million, human existence yeah. being scary and confusing. Mm -hmm. Where did you do your research for this uh, optimistic nihilism piece? Was it on, mostly on YouTube? Well, it was mostly on YouTube, but it's it's been a long time coming. I've been trying to write this one for years as, as what I would call an ex-nihilist. So very much. In the 1990s, going through the sort of postmodern art school world that I came from, we were very much about destroying all values and laughing at anyone that had any values and putting everyone down who believed in anything. Um, so there was a sort of virulent nihilism at work in the 1990s. And it was reflected very much in the kind of culture that we were absorbed with, the YBA British art scene, you know, Damien Hurst. Douglas Gordon, all these destructions and recyclings of previous art and the music. So, you know, there was there was grunge, Kurt Cobain, ministry, industrial music. It was a very um, aggressive sort of punky form of nihilism. And I think what happened for me anyway in my in my 30s and then into my 40s was I realized that nihilism, you eventually, after attacking everyone else's values, you have to ultimately attack your own. And you can end up eroding the ground on which you stand. And I think a lot of us realize that you can't be a nihilist parent. You can't teach children to believe in nothing. Um, it's all very well to do it as fun in the early stages of nihilism, when you're very much against the world and against everyone else. It can be, it's kind of a form of elitism as well. You know, you look down your nose on people who are stupid enough to believe in one religion or another or a political theory or another. Um, but when you turn nihilism onto yourself, as Friedrich Nietzsche said, you must ultimately do. You have to start questioning your own values. Right, it's the Nietzschean um, morals. Yeah, I, I don't know whether we call it the paradox or the the the, the, the Nietzschean uh, play on on nihilism. As you say, if if you don't believe in anything, then you can't really believe in yourself either. Well, that's, I think, where the optimistic nihilists get it wrong today, because optimistic nihilists talk about how nothing in the world matters, um, so you might as well have some fun. Uh, you know, so they use it as well in a way that's a kind of get out of um, commitment and get out of a sense of um, your own feelings. So an optimistic nihilist will say, well, I've flunked my exams and my partner's left me and I'm getting thrown out of my apartment next week, but none of this matters. It's not that I'm a failure, because actually, looking at the cosmic uh, history of the universe, um, everything gets destroyed eventually. Nothing has any value. Um, so in a sense, the, the optimistic nihilist is kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Saying, it's interesting, you and in that you mentioned the 90s growing up. I, I don't know if you know Chuck Klosterman's book, The 90s, but he addresses this issue of nihilism in culture in particular 
in Seattle. I think um, Seattle was was the center of that fashionable nihilism in the United States in the nineties. Yeah. Totally, and you know, it it does disturb me as well that you see parents kitting their kids out with Kurt Cobain T-shirts. Given, I mean, I remember going through the process of, you know, the news coming through about exactly what Kurt Cobain had done to himself, you know, putting a shotgun under his chin and blowing his brains out. And it's this, it's similar with a lot of the generation X icons that we had. I mean, there's, there's a horrible list of the people that we worshiped as cultural icons who killed themselves and killed themselves horrifically. So, you know, I used to wear Alexander McQueen jackets you know, and I discovered that he had an addiction problem, um, and the way that he killed himself was was you know horrific. The same of Philip Seymour Hoffman, Chester Bennington, and um, probably the most influential writer of our generation as well, uh, which was David Foster Wallace. Um, so we we have a lot of the consequences of nihilism have have um, you know it's over the last ten years we've really seen that our generation Gen X. Has has really come a cropper with the nihilism that we played with when we were young, which is so. Let's, uh, so you and let's let let's be concrete here. Are you saying that the problem is the legacy of nineties nihilism, or are you saying that it's been reborn in a in a particularly annoying, optimistic form in the twenty twenties? I'm saying we should look at the negative impacts that that sort of a deeper form of nihilism had on my generation. And I'm at the same time warning that this somewhat superficial nihilism, which is just really a form of hedonism in disguise that's getting popularized now. We should we should be very careful about popularizing it because I do think the nihilism is a it's like a sliding slope. You start off with, you know, the playful negation of everyone else and you end up undermining yourself and you end up turning into a, a, a very much a resent, a resentment fueled person, yeah. someone who lives really on on hatred and negation. Yeah. Um, and that, of course, is uh, Nietzsche. Is, is, is Nietzsche the key key figure in terms of making sense of nihilism in philosophical terms, in cultural terms? Of course, Nietzsche popularized the notion of resentment. You you yep. brought Nietzsche up. Um, hmm. Is he the guy to go to? Is he the go-to guy on nihilism? Yeah, but I th- yes, absolutely. And I think he's, well, on the one hand, he's um, he's also to blame for the, or, or rather our culture is to, do, to blame for the popularization of Nietzsche. I remember years ago hearing skateboarders, you know, saying things like, if it don't kill you, it's going to make you stronger. And, you know, we've got a number of Nietzsche cliches, which, have entered into culture, which fuel a sort of hedonistic individualism. But but really, we have to go to the sort of final works of Nietzsche, where, in fact, his un, his unfinished book that was compiled from all of his notes in the last year, The Will to Power, and in it he actually admits, you know, although I have said I'm not a nihilist, I have transcended nihilist, I am a nihilist, and I have been a nihilist. And he actually struggles with the problem that it's caused, um, and struggles to find a way out of it. I mean, he's really the dark hole at the center of the whole thing. He had the courage to go all the way to, as he said, philosophize with a hammer and reevaluate all values. And in a sense, Nietzsche's solution is a false one because it's so based on, on this notion that the, the great human, 
the Ubermensch can create their own values out of nothing. Um, I think we look at that now and we go, well, actually, no. What does that mean to create your own values? Yeah, it's interesting. We did a show with um, a writer called um, uh, Justin Gregg. He has a new book out, If Nietzsche Was a Narwhal. And it's a book about speciesism and what we can learn from other species. He associates Nietzsche with uh, national socialism in Germany. I, I think that's a rather uh, low blow, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a really low blow, given that most of the left wing thinkers that we have who are so powerful now, um, all the postmodernists were Nietzscheans. So Foucault, Deleuze, um, Kristeva, you know, they were all they were all deeply. They took that sort of. Yeah, the French are not sufficiently original to, to make up their own nihilism. They have to borrow it from the Germans. right? <laughs> well, you know, the French are pretty good at destroying stuff as well. Um, but um no, no, I think I, I think it is a, a low blow, or at least it's it's just a sort of beginner's introduction to Nietzsche. So, Ewan, to is stuff. this you're you're a, a a cultural observer, a novelist, a, a polemicist of one kind or another, a cultural critic, really, in a, in, a, in almost a Nietzschean tradition? Um, is this permeating our culture without, particularly young people? without anyone kind of knowing about it. Your your latest novel, How to Survive Everything, is written with the voice of young people. Is this, is this the center of the heart of our culture without anyone recognizing that it is indeed the heart? Well, I think you're onto something there. I think that, that there, we're seeing this with Generation Z, is that there's a terrible sense of meaninglessness um, that's that's coming through Gen Z and they can put it down to certain things like they sometimes explain it away talking about climate change, how they feel powerless and they don't know what they're going to do. Uh, and also they talk about how they felt really cut off from everybody due to the lockdowns and whatever. But I think it goes much deeper than that. I think it's to do with te modern technology, late stage capitalism. I think the it's young always people... late stage capitalism. We've been talking about late well, stage I know. capitalism since okay, the end well, of the I'm 19th looking, century, you and him. I'm looking for a better phrase than that. Okay, techno capitalism, shall we call it? As long as we don't use the word post, post late stage capitalism. <laughs> no, we've been in post since about the 90s. Or maybe post neoliberalism. But it's but certainly, think... we're not going to blame it all. I mean, you and I have a, we've done a lot of similar writing and thinking on the internet. Yeah. We can't blame it all on the internet, can we? No, I know. But at the same time, I think that there is a form of social alienation that cuts us off from each other and makes meaning harder to access. So for Gen Z, you've got this huge growth in um, depression and self-referral for mental illness. Um, some reports show that it's up by about 50 percent. Um, so that is concerning. Um, there's a motivation. Put it mildly, I, I, it, I get the sense and, and some of this is anecdotal and we all always, of course, borrow anecdotes from our own kids. But there's an apocalyptic quality to what mm. you call Gen Z or the younger yeah. generation. And it's hard to understand where they're getting it from. I mean, they can, of course, point to the climate crisis. Mm. But you, you've lived in Glasgow, the, the heart of the apocalypse. It always will be and it always was and always will be. I mean, the apocalypse is always around us. It's not new in the 2020s, is it? No, no, not at all. It's been, it's, it, I mean, there, if you look at the, the Christian history, there have been 124 different instances of people declaring that the apocalypse is going to happen next year. 
and then it you know it just never happens and isn't so, that and, and and isn't that to be i actually have to admit that i'm a big admirer of nietzsche wasn't that nietzsche's warning that christian values would invade our culture without mm. christianity so mm. you have apocalyptic thinking yeah you have the notion of alienation and mm. all the rest of it without any broader belief system wasn't that his great warning well i think well yes it was that that we would have all the forms of christianity the christian morality the christian apocalyptic thinking without the form of the religion behind it and without the redemption so i mean i think he's absolutely right in that sense but he was right also with this in the 20th century too the rise of totalitarianism nietzsche saw as being um, kind of ghosts of of Christianity, the, the notion of equality. He thought these, and it's the what he calls. I mean, it's probably not politically correct language these days. The slave mentality. Exactly. Yeah, but you know the the um, secular religions that we're seeing now, they are Christian apocalyptic cults in all but yeah, name. I agree. Yeah, and they're particularly, uh, um, they're particularly uh relevant in the united states which was founded on on and by apocalyptic cults well indeed because the uh pilgrim fathers and all the huguenots and all these um apocalyptic protestants that weren't wanted in uh, in france and, and mostly in britain got shipped over to america to colonize the place so america had an apocalyptic millenarian origin with you know with the uh, with the pilgrims who went over and that has that has continued and has proliferated through i think both sides of the political divide in america have both got apocalyptic overtones and puritanistic yeah, overtones and, as well, and also which, in the the way in which they present other people's politics in 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 good and evil terms and again nietzsche of course was an expert on the idea of good and evil wanted us to get beyond those terms, but uh, the way we present anyone who doesn't agree with us as evil. I mean, the key question, you and for you, of course, and I'm sure you've asked this many times, um, is, is what's the alternative to nihilism? How do we believe in an age of disbelief? Well, I think it's, I think it's important to understand the history where nihilism came from. And to understand that that in the 1850s, when Schopenhauer and Nietzsche were starting to talk about um, the universe being meaningless, it, these ideas came originally from cosmology in the 1850s. It was the discovery of the theory of the heat death of the universe. Yeah. So the idea that and the universe... Darwin, of course, as well, who added his own fatal mix to it. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's a whole bunch of Darwin and there's a lot of heat death in Schopenhauer and Nietzsche. And from that perspective, it does look like we are, you know, naked apes driven by the will for no particular purpose whatsoever. And we're going to, our planet's going to be burned up and the universe is going to freeze and expand to total lifelessness. So there's a, there's a cosmology behind that birth of nihilism, if you like. And I think nowadays people are talking about meaning and the cosmos and consciousness in different ways and i think these questions are open again we might it, it might be um preemptive and a bit obstinate 
to just go, oh, life is meaningless. The universe is meaningless. The universe is is going nowhere. We're all going to die. Um, it might be that we live in a cyclic universe. It might be that consciousness is part of quantum mechanics. It might be, you know, there might be um, some reason behind the fine tuning of the universe. These questions have been blown open again. So, so meaning um, and consciousness are are part of the debate. I think right. the and I, one of the things I'm seeing look. with this show is that people are looking for meaning in the post-Darwinian world, going back to that Justin Gregg book on if Nietzsche was a now. Well, we're looking for meaning and purpose with other species. Yeah. And it's ironic at a time where we're inventing maybe post-humans, smart machines. So mm -hmm. everything seems to be up for intellectual grabs these days, doesn't mm -hmm. it, Ewan? Well, there are some dangers in, the, you know, in the whole uh, "let's make an AI that will answer all the questions for us." You know, I'm I'm a little bit concerned about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we all are. In fact, I'm doing a show later today on that. But my point is that that's happening at the same time mm. as we're looking at hawks and dinosaurs and dogs yeah. and, and other species to, to learn about ourselves and how to behave better. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we're at a, a sort of explosion point where we've had an accumulation of meaninglessness for quite a while. And there's just a huge hunger and a craving for meaning and purpose. And that leads us, some of us, towards more secular religions. It leads some of us towards um, science or scientism. Um, and it'll lead others back towards the old religions. But I think we're at a turning point now where where there's a craving in the Western world for meaning and purpose. Because on the other side of meaning and purpose, we have terribly abject, abject depression and demotivation, which, I, I mean, I, I recall um, uh, Mr. Harari, uh, Yuval Noah Harari, talking about, um, this was at the World Economic Forum, talking about the future of automation and how in, in the future people, there would be uh, large numbers of people would be useless people. I mean, I think looking at that kind of technological future, useless people are also people who've not got any meaning in their lives as well. So yeah, have you read Clara and the Sun? That's very good on um Yeah, that's, that's book, uh, yeah, it's, it's a sort of friendly AI. Yeah. And remember, Nietzsche was envious of cows because they had completely meaningless lives, but they weren't aware of it. I don't know whether we can become cows. Can we, Ewan? Remember well, his, I, I, he wrote, I don't remember where he wrote, but he wrote about the cow in the field just munching and happily going about its business because it didn't have any thoughts. Well, yeah, I, if I was to stick this pen into my frontal lobe, I could become like a cow quite quickly. I think Nietzsche really was talking about that almost facetiously, though, or in a comparative way, because he, he was not really one for for dreaming of perfect idols and and, uh, you know, man in a prelapsarian state where he's back to nature. Um, uh, but it may not have been an accident that he embraced the horse before the horse in Turin. The, uh, yeah. Before, yeah. Well, on a Turin street before he quote unquote, went mad. So certainly the the issue of other species might be one way out of our nihilist labyrinth, do you think? Well, I think the notion of care 
and caring for someone or something. It might just be that animals at the moment are a way that we're seeing what being is. So we're feeling something in common with other animals. I don't know if you've ever had that experience when you see an ape in a cage and you look into each other's eyes. There's this sense of this tangible, common something. It's very, it's very powerful feeling. I had it with a gorilla. The gorilla stared at me and I felt overwhelmed with sort of compassion and connection for that gorilla. What about the act, are you, and you're a successful novelist, the act of creativity, of getting into other people's minds and skins. Is that a way out of nihilism? Your book, uh, your latest novel, How to Survive Everything, um, is an attempt to get into the heads of uh, teenagers. Is that one way out of our nihilist trap? Well, I think the nihilist problem is that it does isolate you. It, it makes you um, go into yourself and see everyone else around you who's not a nihilist as, as, as foolish. So I think what's lacking in that is sort of compassion for the human need to believe in things and compassion for people who have different belief systems than you do. Um, How to Survive Everything is about a teenager who's caught between two parents with entirely different belief systems. So she has to, um, on the one hand, deal with a father who is, is um, a conspiracy theorist who believes that the world is ending. She has to deal with her mother, who's a very uh, pragmatic, modern career woman. And she's torn the, the protagonist. And, and they're making it into a TV series. Congratulations, you. And that's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, I think so. It'll be, uh, you know, survivalists in the middle of nowhere battling over the meaning of life. <laughs> but you're, you're in a privileged, and then I use that word carefully because I, you know, sometimes people use it polemically, but you're a, in a privileged position as a writer. I mean, you don't struggle with nihilism personally, do you? I definitely struggled with it over the years. I, I lost, in, in about 2014, I lost three years to to really severe depression, which coincided actually with studying nihilism or asking the big questions of nihilism. It also came after the death of my father. So I was asking core questions like, what is the point of being? And how did you get out of it? Um, I actually... It, I, Not I, drinking, I hope. No, 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 no. In fact, I stopped drinking. Um, so I, I stopped drinking nine years ago. Because I realized actually that my father had struggled with nihilism and depression all of his life as well. And then my grandfather had too. My grandfather um, was a, a church minister who renounced his faith, became an alcoholic and killed himself. So we had this sort of knock-on question through the generations of my family about, you know, me- meaning in life and purpose and faith. Um, so it, this all sort of rollerballed into uh, 2015 for me where I was just unable to work or to do anything much because you know, the nothingness of the universe just sat very, very heavily on me. And I was, I was so, quite uh, sick, the, the, sick the with nihilism. Like a nothing burger. I know you think that that's the, <laughs> that's the core right. uh, phrase associated with, uh, <laughs> with optimistic nihilists. Um, you and that's we did right. a show recently with the, the novelist Allegra Goodman Mm. Uh, she has a new book out. She's a, another successful novelist called Sam, which, like yours, is an attempt to get into the, the head of a teenager or a young woman. Yeah. Um, and mm. we talked about uh, the idea of a novelist overparenting their, their characters and avoiding helicopter authoring. How do you do that? How did you do that 
with uh, how to survive everything. Do, do, do you have to be careful as a novelist to not well, invade your character's privacy too much? Well, I think to it's give them great... space and time to grow up, even if you're writing about people growing up. I think it's a great thesis that she put forward, the idea of the helicopter author. I, I certainly, I wasn't a helicopter parent myself. So I was a bit like the father in the, in the book, How to Survive Everything. So I would take my kids out to do daft and ridiculous things like let's go and see a building being destroyed or, yeah. you know, let's go and, got, explore. and your kids now are in their twenties, right? So they at least survive. Well, so far anyway. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think you have to, you have to let your characters live and breathe and do their own things and sometimes go against your better intentions. You can't control them. Otherwise they'd all end up a bit like you. So if you have, if you have like uh, six different characters, like I do and how to survive everything, um, they've all got to have their own space. I can't possibly control all of them. And, uh, and also I'm looking for points of tension between them. So um, helicopter authoring is, is not really on the cards there. I, I wonder um, also you uh, and whether there is a, a socioeconomic element to this. Nihilism, of course, was very strong in the, the Russia of the late 19th century. Yeah. Um, is it particularly fashionable these days because of the reality of our new aristocracy? And it's an aristocracy which is, again, built uh, without acknowledgement. I mean, we live in an aristocratic world, but there's none of the the infrastructure of traditional aristocracy, the dress, the lineage, maybe even the race or racism associated traditionally with it. So enormous mm. inequality and yet mm. nothing actually pinning it except some belief in the free market. I think for me, the nihilism that we have today comes much more from the fact, as the sociologist Zygmunt Bowman would have said, that, that all the long-term things we used to have before are in a state of extreme decay. So the long-term job the long-term relationship, the fact that um, millennials can't actually afford to get on the housing ladder. Uh, the whole short-termism leads to a, a form of depression that then seeks distraction. And I think the optimistic nihilism fits in there. Optimistic nihilism becomes a way to say, well, um, I'm not such a failure because nothing matters. So I think a lot of depressed people who feel that they're not getting on in life because of the very aristocratic structure that we live in just now, because of the social hierarchy. A lot of people who would be in horror at seeing themselves as losers in this system use optimistic nihilism as a way to say, well, I, I, it doesn't really matter if I'm a loser because we're all going to lose anyway because the universe is going to die. So it's, it's a kind of cunning but at the same time terrible solution to the impoverishment and the depression and demotivation that we heal, sorry, that we feel all the time. Um, I think that's really the problem with the system at the moment is so many people feel very disempowered and feel kind of useless. Yeah, I like your, your, your use of the word cunning. I think it's an interesting word. Um, so, so really it's the foundations, this nihilism is the foundations of our therapeutic culture and society can we get beyond therapy Ewan are you embracing therapy here or or trying to get beyond it or beneath it or above it well I um 
I've done a fair bit of therapy in my time and I, I have found therapy useful, but the kind of therapy that we see like YouTube therapy, self-help culture, um, I think this just feeds into a, a very kind of isolated self who seeks information on the internet, who processes it and packages it for their own use. So it becomes a kind of meme therapy. You get like a couple of phrases and expressions that you use to prop yourself up. I think actual face-to-face -face therapy is a, is a much more powerful thing. Again, it comes back to the notion of one-to-one -one and care and trying to get away from these screens that we're talking to each other through. I mean, I know I start to sound like maybe I'm being more of a Luddite than um, a pro-therapy person, but but it, you know, I, I do think that actual contact is much better than trying to cure ourselves of the problems the internet's given us by going back on the internet. Finally, Ewan, um, you're a writer. You, um, people watching will see lots of books behind you, around you, surround yourself with books. Um, what books should we read in order to make sense of nihilism and perhaps get beyond it? I assume Nietzsche, maybe Schopenhauer, who else? What modern writers? Yeah, well, these guys are quite, they're also quite kind of dangerous to read. I would read Schopenhauer just because Schopenhauer is a, a beautiful writer. Mm. I would read later Nietzsche because he really grapples with... Bauman? Uh, I once did a, an event yeah, in Italy on Capri with Bauman. He was a very nice old man. I think he just died. He did. He, d he died a few years ago. Um, I do some work with the Bauman Institute occasionally. I'm a big fan of Zygmunt Bauman. He was a leftist sociologist who, who did this um, fantastic analysis of, of um, social fragmentation in the time we live in. I would advocate reading Mark Fisher, um, who also died a couple of years ago. He, again, he's, he's a leftish leftish theorist who talks about social um, stagnation and cultural stagnation in the time in which we live. He says, this is a fantastic line of his, he says, what is 21st century culture? It's 20th century culture repeated on high def screens. So, you know, there's, <laughs> he's, he's really onto something there with our culture of remakes and rehashes and reboots and, big intellectual properties that get recycled all the time. So I, I'm writing a piece about uh, Mark Fisher and how we really need him just now. And then, well, he's dead though. Anyone alive? I know. You and who I can get on the show <laughs> to talk about this. We can't get Bauman. He's dead and Fisher. Well, alas, life is but short, but, but big, there are big themes that recur over the generations. And, and sometimes we have to dig them out from people who come slightly before us because we're too caught up in the, in the sort of, um, fast nowness that hits us all the time. Maybe to take a step back sometimes, which is why we read old dead people. <laughs>